It was late one fall in Halloween land, and the air had quite a chill. Against the moon a skeleton sat, alone upon a hill. He was tall and thin with a bat bow tie. Jack Skellington was his name. He was tired and bored in Halloween land. Everything was always the same. Hello, cassettes, and welcome back to the Boo Case Diaries. <laughs> it's officially the spooky month, and we're three old fiends learning everything we can about movies and TV, and hopefully teaching you in the process. Yeah. I'm Marcy with Robin. <laughs> and Adam, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so the harvest is upon us. And Samhain, or Samhain, is almost here. The days are shorter, the air is cooler, and we're all enchanted with the scents of falling leaves and pumpkin. Yes, it's time to talk about Halloween. Finally. Woo! Yay. But tonight, we're covering a stop-motion musical classic that was born from a love of two holidays, Halloween and Christmas. In fact, if you ask anyone whether this film is Halloween, or a Christmas movie, you might spark quite the debate. Yeah, actually on Twitter we asked what people thought, and they told us that it is both. Mm -hmm. Both won the poll. But out of the two, Halloween won over Christmas. Yeah, I mean, the the true answer, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Released on October 13th, 1993, The Nightmare Before Christmas gleefully celebrates everything strange and wonderful about Halloween. The film immediately introduces the audience to a horrid cast of characters, personifications of our deepest fears, happily singing in friendly unison. I am the clown with the tearaway face, here in a flash and gone without a trace. I am the who when you call who's there. I am the wind blowing through your hair. Yeah. What creative ideas. Yes, Mm -hmm. very. Brought to life by a powerhouse team led by Tim Burton, Henry Selleck, and Danny Elfman, the film follows Jack Skellington, the pumpkin king of Halloween Town, as he faces issues with burnout and his own identity. Jack's purpose in life becomes reinvigorated when he discovers Christmas Town and attempts to give this new holiday a try instead. Outside of holiday connections, this is a movie that has inspired audiences for almost 30 years. So, goblins and ghouls, let's talk about Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah! (laughs) Oh, I'm so excited for this episode. Yes. We did so much research for this one. Yes. This is one of our most detailed episodes. (laughs) Quite extensive. There's quite a bit out there. Yeah. There is a lot of information about this movie, which is great. I love it. Sometimes on this show, we will cover a topic that has seemingly no information out there. (laughs) Like we, We have to really dig to find stuff. And then there's a movie like this where there is so much... Maybe one day we'll find that perfect balance where there's just <laughs> enough to make a good episode, but then not too much where it's overwhelming. Right. Yes. <laughs> you may notice that the movie is officially referred to as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. 
Burton was the person who created the concept of the movie. Growing up in Burbank, young Tim Burton was fascinated by the Halloween and Christmas decorations in the local stores and shops. For years, as a joke, he would place Halloween decorations on his Christmas tree. He thought the holidays clashed in an interesting way, and it was funny seeing them mash together. Especially because in retail, there really isn't a Thanksgiving period. Yeah, there's not. So it, yeah. any kind of fall decoration is sold at the same time as the Halloween decorations. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the Halloween and Christmas decorations do exist in the store at the same time. Yeah. In a lot of stores. And so it is kind of funny to walk from one aisle <laughs> where there's skeletons and blood. And then you go to the next aisle and it's Christmas. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting to think about it now, already knowing about this movie. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we think about the mixture of Christmas and Halloween as like, oh, this is Nightmare Before Christmas. This is no big deal. <laughs> but but before this came, it's like looking at those mixed together for the first time, what an interesting feeling it must have been, you know? Yeah. Yeah. For years, Burton built on that idea. Imagining a story told in the tradition of classic Christmas specials, like How the Grinch Stole Christmas and the Rankin and Bass Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but about Halloween. After attending Cal Arts, the school notable for uniting many famous animators that would go on to work for Disney Animation and Pixar, Burton worked on The Black Cauldron and Fox and the Hound, two classics in the Disney Bronze Age. He later said it was a struggle to animate in the style of a classic Disney film, especially with Disney eyes. Making cute, cuddly creatures was difficult for him, which was why he would eventually move on from the animation department. He also started working on his own side projects, one called Vincent, narrated by the incredible Vincent Price, and the original Frankenweenie. Vincent is so... If we can find it, we'll link to it so people can watch it. It is a very macabre animated short about a little <laughs> mm-hmm. boy named Vincent. You could definitely see <laughs> the early stuff that led into this movie. Oh, yeah. During this time, however, Burton developed the idea for his own movie even further. He wrote a poem, The Nightmare Before Christmas, as a twist on the first line of the Clement Clark Moore poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas. This original story was the bare bones of the film, following the character of Jack Skellington as he attempts to take over Christmas. We can see how Dr. Seuss's Grinch really influenced this part of the story. With the rhyme scheme and the subject matter, Jack Skellington was meant to be the reverse Grinch. Ah, yes. Very interesting. Yeah, he's only taking Christmas in theory. You know, he still wants Christmas to happen. Yeah. But he wants to do it. Yeah. It's like, I can do it better. Yeah. And in a way, too, he loves his holiday, Halloween. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. in this movie, he, you know, he's kind of getting tired of it. But the idea is he's always been the best at Halloween, right? Yeah. Yeah. He always had the best scares and the best ideas, unlike the Grinch who just hated Christmas in its entirety. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. He's doing this from a place of love, really. Yeah. It's interesting before he meets Santa, how he thinks Santa is like a, just like a, terrible ruler of yeah, this land. Yeah, a ghoulish <laughs> a ruler ghoulish just ruler. like him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Sandy Claus. Yeah. <laughs> There's even a 2D animated version of this poem performed by Christopher Lee, and we will link to that in the blog so that you can watch that. Mm-hmm. Tim Burton shopped the idea around, but because animation wasn't a very popular medium at the time, many places didn't seem interested. 
Remember, this was still the Bronze Age of Disney, and the studio itself was in danger of closing down. And uh, at the time, you had other studios, especially with Don Bluth. Mm Mm-hmm. Those other things did exist, but animation was not super popular at the time. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Burton remembers that some people were interested in the idea, but weren't sold on stop motion. Stop motion is much more popular today than it was in the 1980s, and that is really saying something. Mm-hmm. Because stop motion, though it is much more popular now than it was, yeah. It is still not the most popular form of animation. Right, yeah. No. It takes so much work and money. Yeah, it's time-consuming. It, it costs right. so much. But Burton didn't feel that this story could be told any other way. He felt that there was a magic to stop motion, a reality to it. It had the realism of live action with the creative freedom of animation. Plus, the food looks way better. <laughs> oh, yeah. <absolutely. laughs> you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> In the mid-1980s, after creating his live-action short Frankenweenie, which is awesome, by yes. the way, the live-action original Frankenweenie, mm-hmm. it's got the actor who played Bastion in The NeverEnding Story, and uh, also, yes, and mm-hmm. Shelley Duvall yes. is in it, too. It's, it's wonderful. Take a watch. Yeah. Tim Burton directed his first full-length feature film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. This movie was huge for Tim Burton's career, not only because it was a major movie, but because it was the first collaboration between Tim Burton and composer Danny Elfman. Elfman was a rock artist before he composed films, and he felt like he had no idea what he was doing. The two men continued to collaborate on films like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, and when Tim Burton brought the idea of Nightmare Before Christmas to Elfman, Danny embraced the idea and ran with it. Yay! Heck yeah, baby. Yeah. (laughs) According to Burton and Elfman, the songs came first. Neither of them had ever done a musical before, and they didn't want grand show-stopping numbers, but instead something like a three-penny opera, where the plot continues through the songs. Wow, that's that's really cool to think about. I never really considered that you know watching yeah. the movie i don't think about it that way but that makes total yeah. sense right it's it, it you're watching it and you're supposed to kind of imagine that you are watching a local theater production right <laughs> right like a yeah. sm- you know yeah you're, and it's not like a full theater too it's like a company of 10 people and <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's a tiny little orchestra there and you know it, yeah. that's the kind of the idea that they're going for yeah oh man Danny elfman remembers that when burton would come to him with new ideas for characters and plot He would push Tim out of the room because the melodies were popping into his head and he needed to write them down before forgetting them. (laughs) Although Elfman is credited with writing the melodies and lyrics to the songs, he says Tim Burton deserves a writing credit for all the ideas and lines that he contributed. The songs were written long before any scenes were shot or even before there was a screenplay. The movie was structured around the songs as each song signified one part of the plot. It They had the songs first more than anything, which is so interesting. Yeah. It's such an interesting way to do this. Yeah, it's it's like the reverse of what you'd think. You know, yeah. you just don't imagine those being first. Right, because score always comes last. Like, it is one of the yeah. last things that you yeah. do. And, yeah, so doing the songs first is interesting, and then score also last. Elfman felt a personal connection with Jack. At the time, he was in the band Oingo Boingo, 
and he had started branching out, doing scores for movies instead. He said that the song, What's This?, was slightly inspired by his own feelings at the time, where Halloween Town was playing in the band, and Christmas Town was the new world of film music. That's cool. How cool that to, like, you can so look neat. back on something like that and say, you know, this is where I was in my life, and this is, you know, this is how I yeah. influenced this. And I also remember Tim Burton saying that Danny Elfman was a lot like Jack Skellington mm. in the sense that Danny Elfman was this cool rocker in yeah. Halloween Town. But then when he <laughs> yeah. discovers Christmas, he becomes this nerd who's really <laughs> interested in how things are created and, you know. And they're like, something's up with Jack. Yeah. <laughs> something's up with Jack. What the hell is up yeah. with Jack? <laughs> because of this and the fact that Elfman had written the songs himself, he approached Tim Burton and requested that he be the singing voice for the character. Elfman said, I realized that I was writing a lot for my own character. I went to Tim and said, I'm not the best singer alive by a long shot, but no one's going to sing Jack Skellington better than I am. And he agreed. Heck yeah, boy. He, he said things like, I felt like I was writing my woes <laughs> when, when he was writing those songs. Oh. And, and he said it would have been painful to hear somebody else sing oh. yeah. those songs. Man. It's like having somebody else write your memoir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It'd be super yes. weird. Yeah. It's like writing a podcast episode and listening yeah. to other people read it. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Um, Almost sounds like somebody else <sighs> writes our <laughs> what we're saying, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know. Long after the songs had been written and the film was shot, Elfman also had to piece together a score. He later referred to it as a sort of jigsaw puzzle. He needed to work the songs into the score without giving too much of the melodies away, and they needed to fit together seamlessly. Musicals often alert audiences to an upcoming song, and although he had never scored a musical before, he was able to connect the songs with transitional music so no number was jarring. Elfman said it was a challenge, but not in a way that made him want to give up. It was challenging in a way that made him want to try even harder and even more excited about the project. The limited orchestra recorded in a small space, giving the tracks more of a small-scale sound. This lent itself more to the operata sound that Elfman and Burton were looking for. Yeah, having that smaller group of instruments. Yeah. Instead of a John Williams score, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have a full orchestra yeah. and this sweeping music. I mean, really, they're just working on a small scale altogether here. Yes, I mean, the whole thing. Small, small characters, small <laughs> score. Yeah. Small. After years of concept art and sketches, it was time to start pulling the animation team together. Tim Burton had a visual consultant named Rick Heinrichs reach out to Henry Selleck as a possible director for the film. Burton knew of Selleck because of his recent work with stop motion. For example, the Pillsbury Doughboy commercials. <gasps> yeah! How cute is that? And also because they both graduated from Cal Arts. That's convenient. Yeah. Yes. 
Think about going from the Pillsbury Doughboy to Nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) What a what a difference! Yeah, yeah. Just have that in your mind. It's fun. Though a lot of these characters have that cute quality to them, even though they're supposed to be grotesque. Yeah, there are. Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of weirdly cute characters in this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's it it helps with you know how popular this movie is, or it lends itself to being so popular. You know. Jack Skellington is the scariest guy in Halloween Town, mm-hmm. according to the universe, right? Right. But he's on everything. You know, yeah. In our world, he's everywhere. You yeah. You see that skeleton he's face. Like a... Oh, Jack Skellington. Yeah. He's and skeleton. And <laughs> he's scary when he wants to be. You know, he's got yeah. those different facial expressions and stuff. True. But I, I, it is interesting because it, it all depends on what you think is cute. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people think of cute and they do think of Bambi. But right. other people might think of cute and think of a gremlin. Yeah. Gremlin. Invader Zim is one that comes right. to my mind. And that was what was so cool about this movie was that it reached that audience. Those people who find things that are cute that, you know, maybe everybody else might not. <laughs> you know? right. They look at things a little differently. After seeing the concept arc, Selleck happily agreed to do the project. He was giddy, in fact, and... Tim Burton trusted his skills and vision so much that he allowed Selleck to be the sole director of the film. That is some wow, some serious props. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is some trust. Danny Elfman handed over the first completed song, What's This, to Selleck, and the crew started storyboarding and building the sets and characters for the number. It was the first sequence shot in the movie. And in the audio commentary, <laughs> you could kind of hear a little bit of a grimace as Henry Selleck <laughs> talks about that. You know, he says, this was a little bit of a test shot for the rest of the songs. You know, every artist is their own worst critic. Yeah. So. yeah. Unless you're really full of yourself. <laughs> mm, that's true. true. Selleck had his own team from years of stop motion animation, and he brought them on to the film with him. In the Disney Plus series, Prop Culture, host Dan Lanigan asked Henry Selleck about the pressure he felt as the first-time director of Disney's Disney's first-ever stop-motion film. Selleck explained that he didn't feel pressure at all. Because Burton had so much faith in Selleck, he was a little more hands-off than other producers, which gave the team creative freedom to explore concepts and ideas. He said that he kind of thought that maybe all producers would be that way because yeah. that was the way Tim Burton yeah. was. I don't That's, think so. Yeah. I don't, th- yeah, I, I think, think Tim Burton's special. That was wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. It, it seemed to be kind of a common theme for everything that we watched about this and read. It seemed that Tim Burton kind of comes off throughout this project as somebody who is a great leader, but he really leads from a distance and kind of. Mm-hmm. Let's people do what they're best at and steps in and makes comments when he feels it's necessary. But he kind of let people really explore. And I don't know if that's exactly the case, but that is the impression that I got from all of the things that we watched about this movie. Yeah. On the DVD audio commentary, Selleck said, I never doubted that we would be able to figure everything out. I just wasn't worried. I think I believed in the project so much that I assumed that things would fall into place, and 90% of it did. Yeah. That's amazing. (laughs) Selleck's impact on the film is immeasurable, but one of the things 
that he brought to the project that set it apart from other stop motion at the time was the moving camera shots. In stop motion, we always think of cameras sitting at a fixed position on a tripod while animators manipulate the characters in front of them. So you can imagine that moving camera shots would be technically difficult to pull off. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They were like, yeah, we have this uh, control thing and we push a couple buttons and it moves the way we want it to. And uh, yeah, we're like, yeah. That, yeah, that, we're not confused about that part yeah. of it. What we're really wondering is how you did stop motion while you did that. <laughs> yeah, man. I Because if you get that wrong... <laughs> you have characters like jumping around and movements mm-hmm. look un- mm-hmm. unnatural and yeah. just oh uh, yeah it's such a risk crazy but however this special touch added a cinematic quality to the movie with a dynamic energy that many other films in the same medium lacked yeah yeah I get so immersed in this movie that I forget that these are puppets <laughs> and they're not yeah. you know it yeah. is it's so real to me and it's such, mm-hmm. even though I know it was on a tiny scale, it's such a full length, full life scale mm-hmm. in the film. And I forget that <laughs> these are things that people were just manipulating. And mm-hmm. I think about the camera moving and I'm like, oh my God. You know, that scene when in Jack's Lament when he's on the hill. Dude, imagine that scene without the camera moving. Yeah. Yeah, oh just gosh. sitting there. Uh, yeah. Changed the whole feel. Yeah. You know, we talked about how... Um, Leica is like top tier stop motion right now mm-hmm. but this movie has so much of what Leica brings to their movies too right it's, it, it feels like you know this movie and Leica took I'd say Leica took inspiration from this movie and some of their work mm-hmm. you know and, and it just right. feels so well done just like just like some of these new ones yeah and I mean there's definitely overlap you know like yeah. Henry Selick mm-hmm. He directed Coraline, which is, you know, the first right. Leica movie. Yeah. And, you know, I know that there there are a lot of other, you know, animators and techniques that just kind of hopped on over uh-huh. <laughs> to there as well. Overall, the animation took three years and over 100 artists and technicians to complete. Wow. it's crazy, man. <laughs> Each character started with a metal armature that was covered in foam latex by professional sculptors. Many of these armatures were built by legendary visual effects artist and stop-motion animator Tom St. Armand. Armand has created armatures for many other stop-motion films, but also live-action films with stop-motion sequences and special effects. For example, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Rocketeer, and Jurassic Park. Woohoo! How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. He built armatures for a lot of for those movies as well. Yeah, it's amazing. Think, I think it's so cool because it really emphasizes how much stop motion was in movies and yeah. probably mm-hmm. still it still is in movies, mm-hmm. but it, it's done so seamlessly that we don't even think about it. Yeah, right. you know, stop motion models. You know, we think of stop motion. We think of clay. We mm-hmm. think of you know seeing fingerprints and gritty. Yeah, like yeah, obvious stuff yeah. like Gumby yeah. or. or um, Wallace and Gromit kind of stuff. Yeah. He and Tim Burton both referenced Ray Harryhausen as an early influence on their work. We did a special effects episode not too long ago. Yeah. If anybody wants to go back and listen to that. And yeah. I think we talk about Ray Harryhausen. At least we I believe him. we do. We, yeah. Yeah, because we mentioned one very specific mm-hmm. movie, at least, that he he worked on. Yes. the A huge name in yes. early special effects. 
After the characters were sculpted, the puppet fabrication department painted and clothed them as needed. After Jack Skellington had been created, the animators had to send a test of his armature to Disney to prove that the character would translate well on screen. We watched that test. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he will translate they, well on screen. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> they proved it well. Originally, Jack was meant to wear all black, which proved to be a problem because he was too thin and wasn't showing up on camera. Mm. So, Henry Selleck decided to try pinstripes for him instead. And it worked very well. Oh, it's such a good look. Yeah. His, it's just a sweet suit. He looks so freaking <laughs> clean. <laughs> and they it's didn't just... have to thicken him up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. super fun. Because I think, actually, they did thicken his legs a little bit. But yeah. The, other than that. Yeah, know? compared yeah. to the drawings. But yeah. I, honestly, in order for it to work, you, I mean, they had <laughs> yeah. to at least a little Gotta bit. Gotta right. something. I wonder if there was ever a moment when they were like, make him taller, you know, <laughs> taller, taller, because he's, he's so lanky, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They did this test with Sally as well. The animators wanted her to have quaky doll-like movements, but they ultimately decided that she looked drunk, so they stabilized her. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. In her concept art, Sally was, shall we say, thick. <laughs> with two C's. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, she wore a black and white striped dress before it was ditched for her classic patchwork dress. Oh, man. She was yeah. curvy. Yes, she was. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. She was a babe. Mm-hmm. There were about 200 puppets, many of them duplicates of characters. There were 400 different jack heads with separate eyepieces. Yeah, they came Ooh. up with the idea to just change his head out. Which is awesome. It's so cute in that scene where he says, And since I am dead, I can take off my head. Yeah. And he actually pops off the head, <laughs> which is so cool. And and I love it because yeah. there's a little bit of that. that it kind of feels like tongue in cheek or they're just kind of like, you know, it's a little bit of a joke. The fact that they can, you know, they popped off his yeah. head for the animation. And as a kid, we thought that was the funniest thing. When he said, because it sounded so random oh, yeah. to us. Since <laughs> Such a line. You're like, oh my <laughs> yeah. God. We thought that was very funny. And with his expressions, they wanted them to be so exaggerated. And so they, mm-hmm. they had to just, you know, it's so much faster for them to pop in expressions instead of changing them each time. Especially because what if you want that same expression again? You know, you'd have yeah. to recreate it. Oh, my it. God. Oh, my gosh. That would be so difficult to get yeah. it just right again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Jack was the first Disney leading character without eyeballs. So it was really important that the animators make his face as emotive as possible so audiences would connect with the character. Disney reportedly asked them to give Jack eyeballs, but the animators stuck to their guns. They thought it was an interesting challenge to make him lovable without eyes. The exact opposite of the the ultimate rebellion of the (laughs) Disney eyes. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Didn't even think about it that way. (laughs) And you know... I never even thought about the fact that he didn't have them. Yeah. Until I heard Tim yeah. Burton say that. And I said, oh my God, he doesn't have eyes. Yeah. I didn't even think about it. No. Because he, he kind of like blinks. Yeah. But with no eyeballs. So it's it, you, you just kind of see him right. as a motive with the yeah. blinking. Yeah. And he's not scary. You would no. think he'd be scary mm-hmm. without eyeballs. I mean, yeah. he is when it's time to be scary, but. 
they were able to animate it just as if he did. You know, it, yeah. it feels as if he does have eyes. Yeah. And, you know, I think, though, with the big empty black spots where they would have gone, if they had put eyes in there, I think it would have made him ten times creepier <laughs> to the point where yeah. he wouldn't have been. Yeah like likable anymore yeah you know, he would have been, been too much and it mm-hmm. and it wouldn't make sense he's only a skeleton why would yeah. he have right. eyes sally also had replaceable faces since the animators didn't want to remake her long red hair every single time mm-hmm. so, yeah they didn't just pop off her head they yeah. they did faces instead <laughs> animators used special techniques for the more ghostly characters rotoscoping the technique of tracing over live action footage to mimic realistic movement was used for some of the ghost characters smart yeah Mm -hmm. one of the most interesting characters in the film is zero the ghost dog he was created using a tool called a beam splitter which is used to split a single beam of light into two thus giving zero his translucent appearance yeah yeah i just assumed he was 2d i just assumed he was a classic 2d animation yeah just kind of drawn on yeah you know, finding out that he was also a puppet, just like everybody else, but they just filmed it differently. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, man, that is so cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And also he has a jack-o'-lantern nose, which I didn't realize. Wait, what? Yes. Yes. Does he really? Yes, his nose, if you look at it, if you pause and zoom in or mm-hmm. whatever, it is a it is a lit-up jack-o'-lantern. It's a little pumpkin with the eyes and the mouth. Wow. And and that's something that he kept straight from his poem. In his poem, Zero had a jack-o'-lantern nose. Overall, the movie had 230 sets, filling up 19 sound stages. Some of the sets were lit with as many as 20 to 30 lights. That's a lot. That sounds hot, too. Yeah, yeah. it does sound hot. (laughs) There was a very simple color palette for Halloween Town. Black, orange, and white. Tim Burton (laughs) didn't want any deviation from those colors, giving the town the bleak atmosphere of late fall and early winter. Yeah, but I mean, that was just the set design. There are characters that are red. Right. Yes, correct. For the Halloween Town sets, production artists took inspiration from the drawings of Ronald Searle and Edward Gorey. We will link to examples of their work so you can kind of see these influences right. and how mm. how, how they've really, it, it's, you can just see it. Yeah. <laughs> Once you see them, you'll go, oh, I have seen these drawings before. Like, and then you'll oh also be gosh. like, and I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Animators use styles that would call back to the cross hatching done in these drawings. For example, they would use clay or plaster on the sets and scrape them to give an etched look. Each set was first created at a quarter of the size first, so the artists could figure out where the sets should break so they could stand between them and reach the puppets for adjustments. When they weren't able to make a clean break, trap doors were installed on the sets so they could pop them up and open and adjust the characters as needed. (laughs) That is so cool. (laughs) I love the imagery of that. Yeah. It's so cute. Like, it's like, hold up, hold up a sec. And he's like, like, just opens <laughs> the little trap door, fix something. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, <laughs> okay. Man. Shoot it. But I, I never thought about having those breaks in the set. That's a really interesting way to do it. Because 
you know, maybe the camera's panning past some buildings or something. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you may, and the buildings maybe were built at different scales so that the person could walk in between them, but they look like they're right next to each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the shot. That's, oh, that's so weird. <laughs> that's a cool trick. One of the most iconic pieces, the Spiral Hill, that moves with Jack in the song Jack's Lament, was built more than once. There was the stationary hill that was later covered in a foam substance to give the appearance of snow. And then the mechanical hill built with its own armature to move as Jack walks across it. Yeah. Nice. So cool. It's iconic. Yeah. Henry Selick said that it just felt right that the hill would move. But Tim Burton had told Selick that there was to be no magic in Halloween Town. Selick was able to get around this by saying that the hill is mechanical. So in the oh. universe, that is a mechanical hill reacting to Jack's movements and not magic. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's one way to do it. Yeah. I, Perfect. I immediately assumed it would be the hill itself is a, a creature. That's that's what I thought. Yeah, the hill I, was alive. Like yeah. the pumpkin patch was its own thing. Right. That's see, that's what I I was thinking. Yeah. But you know, okay. No. Nope. Maybe the scientist guy built it. Oh, maybe. Oh. You know, he's very technically savvy. I guess yeah. he built. True. He built a lot of stuff. Yeah. Maybe it's just like a sculpture in Halloween Town. You know. Yeah. It's a movie <laughs> sculpture. I in that episode of Prop Culture that we mentioned earlier. They show, somebody who worked on the movie has that hill with the snow on it, and you can see the footprints from the puppet. Yeah, oh, cool. and that to me that's so cool. Like oh, it, yeah. you know, because oh, they man. they made it like a crunchy. It was a crunchy substance, so that when the character stepped in, it, it made the footprint. It's just very neat. Oh, talk about having the coolest like movie prop. Yeah, yes. you know, people. <laughs> People love to collect movie props. It's a oh, big yeah. thing. But having a tiny, like, set from a stop-motion movie yeah. would be so cool. <laughs> the ultimate collector piece. Overall, there were about 12 to 17 animators and eight different camera crews tasked with capturing the animation. Every form of animation takes a little bit of acting because animators need to understand the motivation behind their characters' performances in order to draw them well. But with stop motion, each animator is essentially putting on a performance through their puppet. This is something Henry Selick understands and tries to get from his animators while directing. He said, In the end, it's an animator and their puppet, and they have to breathe an actual performance into that puppet, one frame at a time. Whew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pressure. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the Muppets. You know, yeah. Muppet oh, yeah. performers aren't just puppeteers, you know, yes. they're also actors. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. Yeah. Selick himself became the actor animator for Jack. So Tim Burton created Jack. Danny Elfman gave him his soul and Henry Selick brought him to life. In their own ways, all three men saw themselves in the character, which would explain how Jack resonated with fans so well. He was completely authentic. Yeah. That's super true. It just, Jack is, like I said, is an iconic character mm -hmm. and he's on everything, you know, not just Halloween stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's just like that kind of market for that, like we talked about earlier, that cute but not cute stuff. Mm -hmm. he, he's just the top dog in that department. Yeah. 
Selleck based Jack's movements on his character design and the movements of spiders and stick bugs. He also used Fred Astaire's elegant dance moves as a reference as well. Oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Animators did two to three test shots before Selleck would sign off on the movement and acting before the final shot was done. It was so meticulous that one minute of film took an entire week to shoot. Oh my gosh. You're kidding me. <laughs> There's, that is so much. Yeah. The oh. patience. The patience <laughs> on these people yeah. is strong with these ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's at a point where I would just not even have to think about the final product. I just wouldn't be able yeah. to think about it. I would just, mm-hmm. we're just taking this one day at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, this one minute is the whole product. Yeah. <laughs> Horror writer Michael McDowell had previously worked with Tim Burton and was the screenwriter for Beetlejuice, and actually started working on a draft of this film's screenplay. However, he was too ill to continue working on the project, and the screenplay was taken over by Caroline Thompson. Aww. Yeah. Thompson was actually Danny Elfman's girlfriend, and at the time, she had heard every song in the movie, which made her the perfect person to write a story that connected them. Yes. Yeah, how nice is that? (laughs) Convenient. Yeah. According to the DVD commentary, McDowell still made contributions to the story, like Sally's tendency to break apart and piece herself back together. Thompson said that she immediately elaborated on this idea and pictured a scene where Sally would use her disembodied leg to seduce the villain Oogie Boogie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. What a great idea. (laughs) Caroline Thompson wrote the new script in about two weeks' time and was not required to make any major edits or rewrites. She received a few notes from Burton, but her story appeared to perfectly hold the film together, filling in all the gaps. Awesome. Imagine not having any <laughs> any notes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yep. They were <laughs> like, here, just we'll add some chorus of characters mm-hmm. here, and uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, good job. That's... What a compliment that is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. In in this story, it had to be done this way. You know, yeah. it's like every song was absolutely necessary for the plot because it was totally built around that music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, you, you said it right. It couldn't have been done the other way. Like, yeah. no. this is such a perfect upside down movie and it all just works so well from beginning to end, even with the production. It's... It's incredible. Yeah, amazing. Thompson's biggest contribution through her script was Sally's personality and development. Sally went through a couple of transformations throughout the film's process, from the babe in Burton's drawings, (laughs) to a shaky rag doll designed by Rick Heinrichs, to a soft-spoken yet strong and independent character that is an absolute hero behind the scenes of Jack's shenanigans. Yep. Although Sally may at first appear to be weak, she has identified her strengths and attempts to use them to stop Jack and undo the harm he has caused. Thompson is proud of her contributions to the story, as she should be. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if this movie would be as successful as it is without Sally. Without Mm. Sally's personality, and it's kind of... I notice that it's often a thing with women, Mm -hmm. especially women being portrayed in movies and things, where... Women just want to be polite. We try yeah. so hard to be polite, you know, and she she knows what she's doing. She's just that's a good way to put it, mm-hmm. Robin, is she's just being polite about it. She doesn't want to cause confrontation, but yet at the same time, she's not going to take anybody's 
crap lying down. Yeah. You know, she's still going to do what needs to be done. She's going to tell Jack he's being dumb dumb. Yeah. yeah. You know, but she's not going to get like violent or angry about it until yeah. it like gets to a point where she might get like raise her voice or something. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's it's such a different take, but it works really well with her character. Right. And like you said, mm-hmm. without her, it wouldn't be even close to the same. Yeah, she's kind of a foil to Jack in, mm-hmm. in kind mm-hmm. of that way where Jack feels like he needs to change and do all these new things and Sally has identified what it is that makes her beneficial and special mm-hmm. and uh, she is just like, dude, you're fine. Like, this is, you know, yeah. you don't need to do all of this. In fact, it would be best if you didn't because you are causing <laughs> lots of problems. Yeah. And she never apologizes for that, and she knows exactly what to do when the time comes. And, you know, I also think it's funny that Carolyn Thompson, since, you know, she kind of really developed this character, Mm -hmm. she was the girlfriend of Danny Elfman, who was pretty much Jack. (laughs) Yeah. There it is. And there's that romance that story. That is pretty funny. Yeah, like she she's kind of in the background, like it's focused on him, mm-hmm. and and it's interesting because in the movie, in the beginning, it almost seems like she is not even known by Jack, right? Like he, but he does know. But who he she does is. know her, and mm-hmm. and that's revealed a little bit later. Because in the beginning, I'm like, wait a minute, is she trying to get his attention, or mm-hmm. like, right? But it, yeah. it's not. Obviously, he already knows about her. It does seem kind of like, you know, he would have focused on her if he had just hung out in Halloween Town and did the thing that he was supposed to do. Yeah. But what I find really sweet is that he believes in her. When he yeah. he's like, I have a special project for you. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you are the only one who can make this costume for me. Mm-hmm. I believe in you so much that that you can make this amazing costume for right. me. That's really sweet. And also their relationship, especially starting in the beginning, is it's a great lesson. Yeah. Because she is watching him and she hears the song when he's singing mm-hmm. about being bored and burnt out and how he kind of, he's very, he feels really alone because he doesn't feel like he can tell anybody mm-hmm. that he doesn't want to be the pumpkin king anymore Yeah, because everybody is relying on him to be the pumpkin king and this this is just your, this is who you are. And even, I mean, and he's absolutely right. When he kind of takes a break from being the Pumpkin King, yeah. the place pretty much falls apart, you know? <laughs> yes. Everybody's yeah. freaking out, you know? He's taking yeah. a break. and it, Including the mayor. Yes, yes, including the mayor. Especially the mayor. <laughs> and, yes, I know, they have a great political system. They have a yes. king and a mayor. It's a great lesson because she hears the song, and she doesn't approach him like, hey, I overheard you mm-hmm. having this horrible crisis. You know, she is attempting to help him without alerting him, you know, because she knows how sensitive he must be mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this problem instead yeah. of her just coming to him like, hey, I heard about your issue. Let me help <laughs> you fix it, you know, because he, he's not inviting her to do that. No. And it's this great lesson of like, you know, tell someone, Mm -hmm. communicate with people, you know, it is okay to be vulnerable. It is okay to have these problems, you know, and if he had told her that in the beginning, Mm -hmm. she would have helped him work through it. Yeah. So much quicker than him doing all of this problem, but then there would be no. Exactly. At the same time, sometimes you need to figure things out yourself. In the audio commentary, I can't remember if it was Henry Selleck that said it or Danny Elfman, but one of them had said that 
one of their favorite parts about Jack is that he talks to himself about, about <laughs> all this and he comes up with these solutions. He convinces himself. Yeah. He doesn't need anybody else to convince yeah. him. He's he he does it all the time. Right. He's his own worst enemy. Yeah. They said. Right. And he's his own and he's also his biggest fan. Yes. Yeah. Yep. In stop motion, the voice acting is done first. Many of the songs were animated before the final voices were added in. So it actually took a year of going back and reshooting scenes with new singing voices to match them perfectly. Oh boy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. uh, again, time. Oh my gosh. Chris Sarandon provided the perfect speaking voice for Jack Skellington. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sarandon also acted in Dog Day Afternoon and Fright Night, but he's most well known of course, as the <laughs> evil Prince Humperdinck. That's right. Whoa. Prince Humperdinck is Jack yes. Skellington. <laughs> <laughs> he still gets recognized for playing Jack, which is great news for someone who portrayed such an iconic villain as Humperdinck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah. So people will recognize him as his lovable character. Yes. Yeah. Right, and also yeah. because... Humperdinck, you see Chris Sarandon's face. Yeah. Versus Jack Skellington, he's a voice. <laughs> yeah. So it's a, it's really amazing. It's yeah. really good. Danny Elfman, of course, provided Jack's singing voice, but he also voiced the clown with the tearaway face. <laughs> Horrifying. That always makes me laugh. <laughs> that very specific, horrifying monster. I am the clown with the tearaway, tearaway face. face. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to this other clown that doesn't have a face. Catherine O'Hara voiced Sally. Jack, I know how you feel. She had previously worked with Tim Burton on Beetlejuice just a few years earlier. However, she is also known as Kate McAllister in Home Alone and most recently Moira in Schitt's Creek. Yeah. I think she just won a thousand Emmys for Schitt's Creek or something. Yeah. (laughs) William Hickey played evil scientist Dr. Finkelstein, and he was also known for playing Lewis in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, as well as Grandpa Wrigley from Pete and Pete. Yeah. Finkelstein's lair was modeled after his character. Oh, well, dang it. Now I got to go back and pay attention. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Glenn Shaddix played the mayor of Halloween Town and was also Otho in Beetlejuice, which was the interior decorator. Yes. Uh-huh. I just watched Beetlejuice and I found that out and I thought, oh my God, I should have known that. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor's design was meant to point out the two faced nature of politics. Jack, please, I'm only an elected official here. I can't make decisions by myself. Jack! It it comes through so clearly, it's wonderful. (laughs) It's a perfect joke. I love that character so much. Yeah. Lock, Shock, and Barrel were voiced by Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, Catherine O'Hara, and Danny Elfman, respectively. The three were inspired by a Twilight Zone episode that Tim Burton saw as a child. The episode featured characters that wore masks, and when they removed their masks, their faces 
were the same. It was a creepy image that stuck with him throughout his life. Yeah. I think that would stick with me, too. Yeah. <laughs> stick was, I haven't even seen it. It stuck with yeah, me. Yeah. Me, too. <laughs> but you can see how the characters are like that because Lock, Shock, and Barrel wear masks that are their faces. Yes. Which is kind of funny. Much. Yeah. Yes. Just exaggerated. Yeah. Oh. And they're just the bad kids. Yeah. You know, they're these bad, bad customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, they were just kind of what you imagined as, like, the, the mischief makers mm-hmm. on Halloween. Those they're the teenagers. Kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the ones who always go for trick instead of treat. Yeah. Yes. Oof. Ken Page played the evil Oogie Boogie, and he was also known for All Dogs Go to Heaven and Polly from 1989. Yeah. <laughs> Looks like I won the jackpot. Bye-bye, doll face and Sandman. In a deleted scene, the identity of Oogie Boogie turned out to be Dr. Finkelstein. Through his dialogue, he explained that he was angry that Sally loved Jack more than him, and he was her creator. Yep. Um, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. In the final cut of the movie, Oogie Boogie is made up of thousands of bugs being controlled by the single boogie bug that gets squished at the end of the movie. Yeah. I think that is what we were supposed to believe yeah. when, he, when he steps yeah. on that last bug. Yes. Yeah. Oogie, the, the character Oogie Boogie himself was just the one bug in basically mm-hmm. uh, a, a mech suit of other bugs mm-hmm. wrapped yeah. in a sack. <laughs> yeah. Which makes sense why he would be like, eating other bugs because lock right. shock and barrel send that one bug down the chute to him and yeah. and then it gets shot back up with the empty cage and it's yeah. like ah okay there was meant to be a scene where the bugs danced as well but the animators found it to be too meticulous to make it happen there was also another deleted sequence of oogie boogie's shadow dancing on the wall but it was also cut for time it was a cool sequence though yeah, it was. Uh. Edward Ivory played Santa, and this was his most well-known role. Santa's voice can be heard at the beginning of the movie during the in- initial narration. Since the narration doesn't return, it makes sense that it turns out to be a character in the movie, though this is not immediately obvious to the audience. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Me neither. Mm-hmm. The Nightmare Before Christmas was technically made by Walt Disney Studios, but they released the movie under the Touchstone name for fear that it may hurt their animation brand. Lol. (laughs) (laughs) Disney was in a precarious position at the time, as they were trying to decide whether their animated films should be made by other studios. For example, should they allow Pixar to make Toy Story? And at this point, they had already said yes to that deal, I believe, because Toy Story came out two years later. Mm. Mm-hmm. But this was a big question at the time. Yeah. They also didn't know how to market the movie. And because of this, it wasn't a commercial blockbuster. It made money, and it was by no means a flop. But its true success would happen in years to come. Mm-hmm. Although The Nightmare Before Christmas is not truly scary to anyone but really small children... Stephen Gray Danis in the Catholic Digest from 2014 had this to say. The frightful or creepy galvanizes us. It speaks to us of mortality, of the moral and existential implications of the kind of beings we are, creatures of frail flesh and eternal spirit, alienated from our world and from ourselves, 
haunted by dreams we can't attain and dread we can't escape. And I was, Man. Uh, oh boy. I felt like he was writing for the wrong publication. <laughs> Surprisingly, he went on to say that it is for all ages. Hey, that's which is good. A rare thing for the Catholic times to say. It, it is. Yeah. It is rare. Thank goodness, because, you know, not just him, but anyone who may have said that, if they just look at the the creepiness of it and just leave it at that, yeah. then it may have been not as successful or it may have, like like Disney was afraid, it may have hurt some form of their animation department. Mm-hmm. It may have hurt the brand a little bit if it was yeah. portrayed as too creepy. Yeah. But when you really get down to it, it, it is an all-ages movie. It's wonderful. Yeah. It, when you think about how we're, we're just coming out of a time where the Black Cauldron almost destroyed the studio. Uh, yeah. And, you know, so they're they're thinking, yeah. okay, let's not do something super scary. And the and it's this one is spooky in a different way. It's it's different. And there is a way there's a charm to this mm-hmm. that I think, you know, really helps it along. And uh, I, not that the Black Cauldron isn't charming because it is. It's a charming story. But, you know, this was just I don't know. I think the songs really help. The cuteness of some of the characters really helps out. Oh, yeah. Even though it's stop motion and, and a lot of people find that to be creepy in itself. So what do you guys think? Do you guys think this is a Halloween or a Christmas movie? Ooh, Halloween. Yeah, I was just going to say that too. For for me, it leans Halloween mm-hmm. because all of the main characters aside from Santa are Halloween themed. That helps a lot. Yeah. But also because it really, by the end of it, it makes you really like Halloween more. Like, yeah. along mm. with Jax, like, no, Halloween is your jam. Halloween yeah. is the place where you thrive the most yeah. and where all of your ideas are the best and you have the best scares. And it and it does bring people happiness like Christmas, just in a different way. And on top of that, you know, we have... I'm. I, about a million and one Christmas movies out there, right? <laughs> it, yeah. It's so easy to find a Christmas movie because it takes place on Christmas. It's about Christmas themes and, and values and spirit and all that stuff. But there aren't nearly as many Halloween movies that that really dive into what Halloween mm-hmm. is about. Especially right? for children. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. A lot of Halloween stuff can be very scary, like the title movie Halloween. Yeah, obviously a very <laughs> scary movie. But, yeah. but with this, it, give it, give one to Halloween. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let Halloween have this one and leave it at that. <laughs> if you want to watch it on Christmas, go ahead. But I'm gonna watch it on Halloween. The movie does do a good job telling the audience like Christmas is not a better holiday. Yeah, they're both great. But yeah. it's not yeah. better. Yeah. yeah. They visit Christmas and then they come back and bring you back to Halloween. Yeah. Mm. And it also, I, the majority of the film takes place in Halloween Town. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we see a lot more Halloween things in the movie right. with just a, with, with Christmas kind of sprinkled into Halloween Town. Yeah. And so there is a lot more of the Halloween characters. And I, I definitely, to me, this is a movie that you can watch any time between the Halloween season and the Christmas season because the characters themselves are living in between October 31st and December yes. 25th. Right, you know, yeah. Since, yeah. since the movie is taking place in that time frame, yeah. to me, you can watch it whenever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you can watch, I mean, I, don't, I, I think you can watch any movie anytime. Yes. But I'm just <laughs> saying 
you know, this to me, you yeah. can watch this as a Halloween movie and you can watch it as a Christmas mm-hmm. movie if you feel like it. I totally understand why people think of it as a Christmas movie mm-hmm. because the culmination, the climax of it is in, in Christmas and there are so many Christmas references and focus and some yeah. of the songs. I love the songs that really combine the sounds of Christmas and Halloween. Mm-hmm. Like Making Christmas is probably. Oh my gosh. I love that song because yeah. they're, they're using yeah. minor key. Written by an elf. Man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Danny Elfman. You know, they're using this very somber sounding music. Yeah. And talking about a beautiful, happy, sweet holiday that is supposed to bring joy to everybody. So. In 2005, it was adapted into a video game by the art director Dean Taylor and Tim Burton. It was made for the PlayStation 2, Xbox, and Game Boy Advance. And Halloween Town would also make an appearance in the first two Kingdom Hearts games, which are very popular as well. On October 20th, 2006, it was reissued as a 3D movie in theaters. It also came with a new CD that had the original songs with bonus tracks that paid homage to Danny Elfman's scores. Some of the artists that contributed were Fall Out Boy, Panic at the Disco, and Fiona Apple. You can find anything you want related to this beautiful film. Clocks, mugs, storage jars that say uh, Frog's Breath and Deadly Nightshade, (laughs) cookie jars, jewelry, so much more. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot. It's everywhere. And mm-hmm. we love it. It's Yeah, it's totally, I mean, I'm totally fine with it. Oh, yeah. The Nightmare Before Christmas was the result of 20 years of ideas, drawings, and collaborations, culminating in an animated classic that will last for generations. It gave Henry Selleck his first full-length directing job, which paved the way for James and the Giant Peach and Coraline. It gave Tim Burton the opportunity to make animation in a new way, his own way, that he wasn't able to do before. The realism with stop motion moved audiences, and the fearlessness that this film had with its macabre imagery made it groundbreaking. It teaches lessons about passion and arrogance, and knowing your own strengths and weaknesses. This film spoke to children in a way that animation rarely did before and helped popularize stop motion just as Disney was healing from its dark age. The Nightmare Before Christmas happily shows how wonderful it is to be who you are, even if you are a nightmare. (laughs) 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 What a fabulous movie. Yes, this mm-hmm. movie is amazing. Yes, did you, you guys knew that? Did you guys grow up watching this? You know, I don't. I don't know if I grew up watching it. Saying like, along with my Cartoon Network phase or Nickelodeon phase, you know, mm-hmm. when I was watching all that stuff. But I definitely did see it at a younger age, and it's always been one of my favorites. Yeah, you know. It's always been a, a shining example of stop motion that you can show to people. And it's just wonderful. I was never, it, me, the scariest of cats, um, <laughs> was not scared of this movie. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, oh gosh, it's wonderful. How well, many times have I say it? Yeah, they're scary characters. Mm-hmm. 
Right. But they're so relatable and they're on a level that we really can understand them. And I yeah. think that once we understand where they're coming from, we're not afraid of them at all. No. Yeah. You know, and when the movie starts, when you go through the doors, which I mean, um, an amazing concept of yeah. these, oh, the these doors, doors yeah. yeah, where you can just fall into the land of a, of a holiday. The door opens and you see that jack-o'-lantern scarecrow and it's all pitch black except for him as he turns and, he, and you, it sets the mood yeah. immediately. <laughs> Points the way. Yeah. And you see that and you think trick-or-treat, apple cider, <laughs> kettle corn. Yes. You know, you see mm-hmm. that and you are like, I am ready, you know, this is oh, exciting. Yeah. I'm so ready for this. And the music pumps you up. Yes. You know, like this is oh, Halloween. Heck yeah, baby. Yeah, and and when you're seeing all these spooky characters revel in their holiday, yeah, and just be so authentically themselves and so excited and happy, just you know, really just being proud of who they are. It's you know, yeah, it's not scary at all. You know, in a way, it kind of reminds me of. Uh, Monsters Inc., where oh. you know, in the world of monsters, they are just doing a job. <laughs> yeah, right? they're yeah. just doing what they do. They're they're scaring for for energy in this case, but they're not bad. They're just they're, you know they're not they're regular they're regular people on their side. When the job's over, they're just themselves, right? And just like Halloween Town, maybe a little bit more exaggerated because they are definitely engrossed in the halloween-ness of it you know very Mm -hmm. very creepy in their own way but when halloween's done they're like oh man that was so great everybody good job high fives all around you know they're just doing their (laughs) thing they love it so much they said that's our job but we're not mean in this town of halloween Halloween. Yeah. yeah exactly i really like this movie a lot because it is it's so fun you know, and there are just so many lessons in it, so many things that you can pick up. And yeah. I think my sister, my sister Becky, really likes stop motion. She's a big stop motion mm-hmm. fan. And a few years ago, she was watching this, and she said, "You know, I wonder if this movie is about cultural appropriation." She she made a good argument for it. You know, yeah. she's like, "He's taking somebody else's thing and trying to make it his own, mm-hmm. and you know, causing all these problems." Yeah. And, you know, and right. Yeah, you know, and so she was like, it's possible that it could be. And it's just, I think that it's just cool how this movie can adapt like that. And you can adapt it to different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's really no wrong way to look at it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Except if you think it's a Christmas movie. No, I'm I'm just kidding. (laughs) Or if you don't like it. (laughs) Uh, Which I think uh, that might be our first bouquet closed. Heck yeah, Perfect. Woo! Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you for listening. You can find us, as always, on our website, blackcasediaries.com. You can find anything related to us there. And, you know, just the other day, I noticed we passed, for a while, we were only at 39 reviews. And just the other day, we, I found out we were actually at 41. There was one that we didn't read. That we did get. It was a review from E.C. Caitlin. Thank I think that stands for uh, Ecto Cooler Caitlin, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, she says, this pod is great because it covers a wide variety of topics to suit your moods and has a friendly feeling. Keep it up. Oh, thank so you, E.C. Caitlin. Yes, thank you. We will try. 
Yes, we're damn we skippy, keep... we will. And yes, we also want to thank our patrons. Thank you, John, Joel, Jacob, Shelly, Anthony, and Jacqueline. Jacqueline. I was almost like Jingleheimer Schmidt. Schmidt. <laughs> John, Jacob. <laughs> um, but hey, thank you guys. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, if if anybody wants to be a patron, we would we would appreciate it very much. But you can go in as Jingleheimer Schmidt just to make it work. Yes, please yes. do that. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Well. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Trick or treat. Uh-huh.